What happens when you stop seeing people? What happens when you stop seeing people behind bars as criminals and start seeing them as human beings? Welcome to Sentences, Storytellers Beyond Bars, the podcast where we explore the impact of the criminal justice system in our communities. Hey everyone, this is Lizette. This is Jose. Hey, and this is Alfred, and welcome to episode four of Sentences. That was quick. I feel like we got to episode four a lot quicker than I thought. But this is an interesting episode. We have a good interview. Um, it was pretty intense. It got pretty deep. And I don't know. I think... I think a lot of things were said in the interview that um, aren't really in, in kind of uh, these academic discussions. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. for. I've been telling people, like, hey, you know, listen to episode one, two, three, but episode four, like... All right, all right, but who are we talking about? <laughs> well, who are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about uh, the revolutionary, revolutionary scholars at uh, CSUN. Um, it's a group of students that are formerly incarcerated that got together to uh, provide a, a resource center for other formerly incarcerated students. And we had four of them uh, I know there are more than just four, yeah. but four, four of them came to speak to us. It was uh, Lily, Rosa, Denny, and Diego. And Diego part is a little dog Lolo. Yeah, he was so cute. And he even had a don't tell anybody, but he had an accident in the seminar room. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's all good. I mean, no one's gonna know. It he left fun. his mark. He left his mark. As did everyone else in that episode. I mean, it was really... <laughs> Not like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. No one else peed. No one else peed. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that was a really... I mean, I can't get over it. It was such an uh, influential, impactful interview that we had. Yeah, and like in the discussions that we had after the interview, Jose, Alfred, and I just... We kept thinking about how grateful we were just to have shared that experience. The interview also revealed to us uh, some ways in which our podcast can grow. Uh, we are not incar- formerly incarcerated students, so one of the things that was brought up brought up to us is that we need to incorporate more voices um, from people who have been impacted directly mm-hmm. uh, by uh, these these uh, the these institution, the yeah. prison system. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. I just really want you guys to listen to it, and I'm really hoping that this is going to generate a lot of. Uh, questions and discussions and yeah pues here we go Ep- uh, episode four sentences so we can just go around and introduce ourselves real quick <coughs> i'm alfred lizette jose rosa lily Jenny. And I'm Diego. Right. And that's Lobo in the background. And that's Lobo in the background. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we don't have to cut cut it or be all formal. We can keep going whatever we're talking about. So you're talking about um, revolutionary scholars, right? Right. So. Um, so when we started revolutionary scholars, it was at CSUN. There was already student organizations. Um, at different campuses. For example, San Francisco State has been doing this kind of work for like 30 years. And then um, I actually first, how I heard of it was by Danny Murillo when he started Underground Scholars at Berkeley. There was an article on him and I had just gotten accepted to Northridge. I had just completed um, my program at Homeboy Industries because that's where I went. Um, And 
I was feeling all of these things, right, as a student now that was formerly incarcerated. And I had like a 10-year gap from being in school. So I read this article on this one guy, Danny Murillo, and how he was formerly incarcerated and how he started underground scholars at Berkeley and all the work that they were doing. And I thought, wow, like, this is really great. Like, there's other people like me was the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. And they're in school and they're doing the damn thing. Like, how can we get those services here on this campus? Because, I'm, you know, formerly incarcerated students have always been on campus. They've just never been um, out there like that, you know? Yeah. It's never really been talked about. So, or they haven't been voc as vocal about their experiences yeah. or it wasn't like a trending topic like it is now. So, inspired by him, that's when um, he connected me to Johnny, which is um, Steve, Steven and Danny were the co-founders of Underground Scholars, and Johnny is Steven's brother. So him and I started just hanging out every Thursday after my painting class at the Chicano house. Oh, cool. And him and I would just sit there and like just talk, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And at the same time... Um, this was when they were thinking about Project Rebound had just been allocated funds to expand into the different Cal states, right? And also, Underground Scholars was also thinking, was also going to expand, right? So I reached out to both of them and I was like, yo, we need you on this campus. And so then Underground Scholars was like, we're only going to the UCs. And I was like, fuck you, y'all are elitist. Right. And then <laughs> Cal, State, Cal State North, um, for Cal State Northridge, um, Project Rebound wanted to come, but Cal State Northridge said no. And right. I never understood why. Wow. And so I kept on emailing, this was before I even started as a student. Okay. So I kept emailing, um, actually it was a professor at Cal State Fullerton that knew I was formerly incarcerated that connected me to the folks at Cal State Northridge and was like, here's a student, like, let's talk about Project Rebound. She never got back to me, ever. And wow. so then I replied to her and I kind of did what you're not supposed to. I replied to her and I CC'd the person, yeah. like, I'm putting you on blast now. Yeah. Yeah. And then she finally, she responded within five minutes and she's like, okay, the reason we don't have Project Rebound is because we don't have the infrastructure in place for that, which is bullshit, right? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. With that, I connected with um, William Watkins, which um, he's the VP of Student Services, Affair. Student Affairs. And it was at a protest for the Dreamers, and we were talking about, like, I was like, hey, so I heard that they're not coming, and this is not. And he's like, honestly, like, like, CSUN wasn't ready for it, you know, at the mm -hmm. time. So I invited him to a roundtable discussion that we had with formerly incarcerated students. This was, like, about two years ago, and then... From there, lots of students um, came and identified as being impacted in one way or another. And we created, um, we gathered names and started like, okay, what do we do now? And we had no idea what we're doing. I, we, I still have no idea what we're doing. From there, fast forward, um, our professors, our advisors helped us um, write this grant. And um, with that grant, it's what gave us the funds to create this resource center, which is where we're at the very beginning stages of now and like Diego and like other students are the ones that are r really running it and carrying the work at this point yeah, yeah and I would say I kind of just walked into like best case scenario like I, I started the grad program in season in the fall and like in the first month I saw a job <laughs> opening for they were looking for formerly incarcerated students and like I was arrested before formerly incarcerated whatever and 
that was the first time that I was like, holy shit, like they're actually like looking for people with my background and it's not about like my background check. And I tripped out on like that fact. But like that was me not knowing who Lily was, who Johnny was, who Project Rebound was. I did my whole undergrad, you know, just keeping that a secret, you know, not knowing that there was there's a reason to help that part of my identity. So I was like blessed to walk into that. And, you know, I walked into all the leg work that was already done for a year and a half. So we just, I got hired, another student assistant got hired, and we started working towards opening this resource center on campus. And right now we opened doors the first week of February. We're in late March. Wow. So it's been like really brand new stuff. Like we're just starting to get to talk to students. We're just getting to, and it's weird. Like the, I went my whole undergrad five years, like not telling anyone I was, you know, I had a felony, I was incarcerated. And like the more I started owning my story, the more like there's a lot of us that are impacted and there's a lot of us on campus. Like every day that I table, I meet like two people that did time, you know, and like they're coming back to get their BA and their masters. And I just trip out like they're, we were the invisible, you know, identity that was not talked about. But yeah, now we're, we're doing work and we're just trying to have our office open. We're trying to recognize by the campus. Like Lily said, we kind of started a, a unique way. Um, they didn't want Project Rebound, so we kind of had to sneak in there how we could. And now we're trying to just keep what we're about going, get more money, get more funds. And keep it student-led and student-run. Um, that's something that I know it's going to shift like when I leave, when we leave, but one thing that I'm really like firm about is that the director of the person, that the person making the decisions, that it is led by somebody that's formally incarcerated. Not just formally incarcerated, because you can be formally incarcerated and not have that vision, mm-hmm. but someone that's formally incarcerated and is like doing the work that understands like the, the issue of like incarceration and the importance of having these spaces. Um, what are some of the resources um, that you find that are super important that these like resource centers provide? specifically for formerly incarcerated or impacted students? For me, it's been community. I think I, I learn more from the people in the room than I do from anybody else. Okay. Um, and that's that's the most important yeah. thing. Yeah, I think it's community as well, and also like being able to imagine that there was a different, like every time I meet people that are, are impacted or are formerly incarcerated, they're like, they kind of trip out. They're like, yo, like I have cousins. Like I didn't know this was a possibility. I didn't know there was an avenue for, you know, criminals, quote unquote, to like sneak into the college pipeline. So it's it's kind of just like the, the owning the story. And I think just connecting people with the ability to like be able to imagine that you could, you know, not just be a criminal first and you could be a bachelor's, uh, get a student, a student with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. So I think that's what's been, as, as, right now I think that's what we help more, just having people own their stories, own their identities, and like know that there is a possibility of them getting more than what they think. You know, society has capped them at, as quote unquote criminals or. What are some of the, I know like it's pretty easy to imagine some of the issues um, people who are formerly incarcerated might face when trying to find a job, but what are some of the issues when you're trying to get their BA or MA? Like financial aid, admissions, is any of that an extra, does, it, does, your, does that background provide an extra uh, boundary? Well, for me, I'll speak from my experience personally. Um, I was arrested when I was a student at Cal State Northridge. 
So I was already like in, yes, I grew up in South Central, but like I was already in school. So okay. that does give me some kind of privilege, even as a formerly incarcerated person. Um, so when I came back to school and I applied for financial aid, they were like, nah, you are on academic probation. You flunked out of school. And I'm like, I was locked up. I couldn't come to class. Uh. And um, so they denied me, right? And I appealed it and they denied the appeal. And at this point, I was like, well, I'm just not going to go to school because I didn't have I didn't have any other kind of support. And um, our department chair um, went with me, met with me. And I had a community of people that helped me email all kind of different people on the campus and say, like, you need to help this student. So in the end, what happened was that CSUN overturned the decision. And then the people from the financial aid office were like, well, her story really sounds not true. What? But since I'm wavering, I'm going to side with the student. And this is a director of the financial aid office. And for me, I felt like as it is, I'm struggling with this identity. I don't want anybody to know. And then I finally open up about it because I need to tell you all my traumas so you can give me some fucking funding. And then you're going to tell me I think it's bullshit. Yeah. Like I felt really... I didn't know what to feel. At the time, I wasn't seeing a therapist. I wasn't dealing with any of that. So I kind of felt like less than. I, f I felt all of these things, you know, that I couldn't even process at the time. Yeah. And even oh though I was God. like, yeah, I got financial aid. At the same time, it was like this other thing, too. What you had to go through just to get like your foot back in. Just to get what everybody else was already getting. Yeah. Like, you're not giving me more than. You're just, I'm just asking for regular financial aid. And so at that time, my department chair emailed my professors and was like, please save us. These are the classes that she needs. Save a seat because if you don't pay, like you get dropped. Right. Save her a seat and we're going to figure this out. He's like, if we can't, he's like, I'll start a GoFundMe campaign for you. And then financial aid only covered like my tuition. I didn't have money for books. And he's like, come and see me and I'll help you with books. I thought he's going to go in his bookshelf, give me the books I need. Mm -hmm. He has a hookup at the bookstore. I didn't know. Uh -huh. So I saw him in the hall and he's like, do you have your books yet? And I was like, no. So he walked me to the bookstore, was like, go get all your books. And I thought that he was just going to like walk out because he's, I don't know, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like he's a professor, like just put on my tab. Yeah. <laughs> and no, he stood in line and with his personal debit card, he paid for my books. Wow. And it was those things that kept me at Northridge. And if those little things, if those things wouldn't have happened for me, I would have not been a student. And I didn't understand the, he kept on telling me like, you don't understand how important your narrative is with your degree. I thought, I didn't understand. So those are the challenges I faced because of, of, of saying that I was formerly incarcerated or, or having been arrested and then being on academic probation. And yeah. how do I navigate all this? That was another thing. I didn't want to send the email. I didn't want, I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know how to navigate it. And people came together and helped me, but. And these are the small ways that like the, a record can impact your life with huge implications, mm -hmm. right? Like it might seem like, oh, so what? She needs to fill out this like SAP, you know, appeal, right? The financial aid or whatever. But it just creates all these other barriers, and yeah, like you're saying, there's all this trauma you're dealing with that you have no idea how to like make sense of. And I can't just imagine that's crazy. And so this resource center that you guys started um, could be like a like a community also, right? But also finding a way to get funding. Yeah, we're trying to be the liaison for students that are formerly incarcerated, systems impacted, 
to the resources they need. A lot of time, like when students do come back to campus and they serve time from like students that I've been talking to, like a lot of them don't want to affiliate with anything or anybody because a lot of them are on different programs after they come out. So they just head down and walk to their class and walk out, you know, yeah. so they don't see them like as like, I'm not a student, I'm a criminal first, you know, I have to check in with probation mm. or parole. Mm. So they're still not convinced that they're students. So it's trying to just put them back on the same platform that no, you're, you're a student now, like these are all the resources that are available to you and take advantage of them. Like you deserve all this money as much as these students applying for scholarships and grants and all these things. And now that it's, I guess, trending, now that it's trending, it's, it's, it's a popular, I guess administration and programs are coming around it and starting to fund, you know, programs such as us. I think, wasn't it somebody like, they were like, oh yeah, like now we want to bring um, Project Rebound to CSUN and we're like, yeah. fuck you, like we're our own shit now, like, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. We, we had our open house and this was like four weeks after we opened the resource center and we invited like folks from administration and AS students and a bunch of AS students that they were kind of lobbying because they were going to run. I don't want to talk shit about AS, but <laughs> like they were kind of just showing face, but they were just like, oh, interesting, y'all started this. Like, we're trying to bring Project Rebound. Like, would y'all be interested on switching your name to Project Rebound? Yeah, right. And no we're way. just like, uh, there's been a lot of like work and purpose, like to why we're doing it the way we're doing. So we're kind of just trying to work with like the politics of being on campus now and being like a resource center and like money's going to come around. So we're trying to make sure we don't put the wrong people in positions and get the wrong idea of what we're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to do something like really, really radical and we're trying to change. No, for sure. Yeah. You know, we're trying to reimagine the possibility of, you know, the way people see people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, trying to, yeah. It's, it's intense what we're trying to do or what we're doing. And I think maybe connecting with folks who, so you're saying that Project Rebound is now kind of trying to get into uh, different no, Cal States? Well, Project Rebound always wanted to come to Northridge. So yeah. they've written letters of support. So Project Rebound, like, that's dope, right? But the problem was CSUN. CSUN didn't want yeah. Project Rebound initially. Mm-hmm. But now that, you know, we've we've been out there, we've put ourselves out there and, you know, have been telling our done stories and we've yeah. done the work, right? Now th- that it's, it's everybody's talking about it and now that Project Rebound has expanded to Cal State LA, to Cal State Fullerton and, you know, to um, three other Cal States, now they're like, okay, we want to join too, but it's like, no, you didn't want to be one of the trailblazers when mm-hmm. they first expanded initially to these other Cal States because you were invited to be a part of the table, but you said no yeah. for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And so, me personally, I kind of feel like we did a lot of work yeah, yeah, yeah. for two students back then for us to get to where we have yeah. a resource space and now CSUN wants to support it. Mm-hmm. Seems like they want to piggyback off of your work. Like now you want it, which is like we can join forces, but I think like, I don't know, like I'm still having like my... No, I get it. Yeah, I think is when something similar happened when I was at a, a UC Santa Cruz, um, one of my friends wanted to start a a resource center, a research group for undocumented students. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from the university. This is back in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to get recognized as an org, right? After doing all the constitution, after jumping we through all the hoops. We had to jump through so many hoops mm-hmm. to just even do that too. Yeah. And then once we did get recognized, 
another Chicano group who shall go unnamed, starts with an M, <laughs> was like, hey, you want to partner with us? You want to, you know, can we be a part of that group? And here, as long as you, you know, fly our flag or, you know, hold our banner. And we're like, no, no, no. Like, that's, so it created a rift on campus because we both coexisted on that same on that same campus and both of us were doing important work but it's just a matter of the, all the politics yeah. that get in the way and it's so annoying because then students are caught in between that you know mm -hmm. and, and and the way that i see it is like now that they're going to start throwing money at it other people want to grab at it yeah. but the ones that are most impacted like you have your careers you know like what i envisioned for revolutionary scholars and the resource center before we even got started was was this we hire student assistants one of those students you know um, that are impacted and preferably directly formally incarcerated, right? Because that's who has the, the, the challenge to getting hired. You do that, then from there you transition into the director program and you run it. This way like you're in school and you're building your resume and once you're already the director, you're gonna be connected to other opportunities. I feel like once you're employed and you're in that position, other stuff coming, starts coming your way and then you can transition out. So it's like you're at Northridge, you're formally incarcerated, you're in school, you're building your resume, you're building those leadership skills, you're learning all that, and then you leave and you create that space for the next formally incarcerated student that comes to, you know, uses the resource center, becomes a student assistant, becomes a director, and it's like our way of sitting the elevator back down for folks to get people, you know, the, the skills that they need for the resume and professional, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Um, so that's kind of like what I, that's, badass, yeah. that's what I envisioned, you know, and this way we, pull each other out and get employed and, yeah. and, and, and do that. And um, I feel like with the university taking it over, I don't know if that's gonna, how it's going to no, work, yeah. you know? So, Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I like the name. Let's go back to the name, Revolutionary Scholars. Where, how did that come about? Um, so when I first met Danny and um, I learned about all this stuff that was going on, I was also still at Homeboy Industries and um, I was talking to the students there that were um, at community colleges. Like, mm -hmm. look what they're doing. Y'all should start it at the community college. Like, we should start one at ELAC that's connected to, like, Homeboy Industries. That way we create a pipeline from Homeboy Industries into the community colleges. And, like, we can do... Like, I had all these ideas, right? And so then from there we were thinking, like, what are we going to call them? Like, the ones at the community college. And somebody was like, Homeboy Scholars. And I was like, no, because gender and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And all this stuff. And so... I was at Homeboy Industries and then Johnny and I were like, well, we need to think of a name. And Johnny was like, I don't care about the name. I care about the work. You can name it whatever you want. You can pick the logo. I don't care about any of that. So I was like, yes. <laughs> so I was actually at Homeboy in conversation with um, the trainees at Homeboy Industries. And I was like, what do you guys think? And they're like, damn, Lily, you're doing some revolutionary shit, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I was like, you think so? He goes, fuck yeah, y'all should be revolutionary scholars. Yeah. And I was like, bam. And that's how, that's go. how yes. we got the name. Nice. It wasn't, it wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> I just ran with it. And I think also it was because Project Rebound was already rejected once at CSUN, right? So we had to kind of, or they had to kind of sneak it in another way. <laughs> yeah. Trying to separate yourself from that as much. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the challenges that um, you face maybe going back or, and, you know, by default, maybe providing some resources mm. uh, or some kind of ways that revolutionary scholars can help, you know, at some point? I, I think for me... After I got my BA, like I was, I was on the illusion that you know, an education was your ticket to success. 
So I had ignored the fact that I had a BA and I was like, I mean, that I had a, 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 a felony or a background and I was just convinced that my BA would speak over that. So I get out of, of Cal State and that's, that's what struggled me. The, the, I couldn't get a job at a school. You know, I graduated BA in Chicano Studies and like for the first two years, I got two interviews, but then I didn't get past the second one. And then I got another interview and I, I got hired twice by two schools, but like during the training process, they, the, the background checks sometimes take a while to come back. And when they came back, they said that it had a felony and both schools like just cut me right there. Like, oh, sorry, we can't hire you. And it was kind of like, I was really, really like hurt because it was just like, fuck, like th this is what I'm trying to like make a career out of, like work with youth and work with community. And like, because of my my background, I, I can't get a job with like with kids or I can't get a job in a school or, or they, they look at me differently now. So like for two years, I was just working like physical jobs and I was working in warehouses getting paid cash and I couldn't just land a decent job, you know, and I would always have to put that, you know, I was convicted of a felony because I was already scared they're going to do a background check regardless. Mm -hmm. So for me, coming back into my master's, I was glad I was plugged in to the master's, uh, to the Chicano Studies Department in CSUN already because I got my BA there, but I felt like that was the only way for me to get past my background because I couldn't get a job with my BA. You know, I'm still looked as a criminal first. So me getting a master's was a response to like, I can't get a job in society. Like I need something more to prove that I'm not a criminal or to like outweigh this this background, this, this anchor that I have. So that, that, that's, that's what it, how it affected me. Cause I wasn't trying to get a master's. I was like, fuck education. I'm just trying to work and help like community youth. And like, I couldn't. So it pushed me to get a master's. And hopefully now it could, you know, I could not get judged you know with my background because maybe now i have a master's maybe that overlooks it but and your that's experience. all yeah that's all hypothetical so i'm hoping um that's a really interesting um connection to like education and incarceration and because we just had a that part part of that interview that we were listening to earlier the second half of it in episode two we talked a little bit more about like education and incarceration and like the mm like how they are in, intertwined and it's really hard to sometimes separate them right they there are very important differences right but there are very obvious similarities too right you all have some sort of number that gets to do you all yeah, some um like it, it's an institution you yeah, know what it, i mean it's it, they're two different it's a, it's a state institution it's state just a different state institution um that's how i see it and um i would joke with Johnny like we were in one state institution dealing with that system mm. now we're at a different state institution doing the same shit but like we just need to learn their game just like yeah. you are in yeah. prison and you try to learn the, you know yeah. mm -hmm. and that's something that I haven't completely learned um, in higher ed <laughs> but yeah. um, as to the challenges very much like Diego I thought that a degree would buy me out of like a social death and I quickly realized that I, it was, I was wrong I applied for employment on campus and I was denied because of my background, even though I disclosed it during my interview and everybody was like wanting to hire me. And like Diego, I had no plans of obtaining a master's degree or anything like that. Yeah. Um, my goal was to survive, not to educate myself um, because I'm a mom, I have two kids. And when I went to Homeboy Industries, I walked through the doors with two kids and 40 bucks to my name and wow. no clue what I was gonna fucking do. 
and I started washing windows and scrubbing toilets. That's how I started at Homeboy Industries, and um, I knew that like that was gonna be hard. And um, I only went to Northridge because I was thrown in the cafe to do prep work and to chop chilies at Homegirl Cafe and my shift was going to be 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. and I was like I can't fucking do this I have two kids and then I had gotten exposed to Northridge and I was like fuck it I guess I'm gonna go to school Um, but (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't like I had this plan to do that and once I decided to that's when Gabriel helped me and the same like I'd go in his office and want to quit every other day and once I was a graduation was approaching I it was not like this beautiful thing like oh you know um, it was like fuck now I'm gonna have to leave school mm-hmm. and I'm gonna have to find a job and I know that I'm not gonna find one and I know that my opportunities look different than that of other students and how am I gonna navigate that and mm-hmm. now I'm gonna have to deal with this and I have already been denied employment at several times and to have that constant rejection like I was just not up for it and um, Gabriel, um, he's our department chair. He sat me down and was like, what are you doing after graduation? And I was like, dude, like, you know my situation. Mm -hmm. And he is the one that encouraged me to apply to grad school and continue. And um, I didn't want to. And he sat me down at my final like advisement. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I, he said, if you can go to any grad school in the world, where would you go? And I was like, CSUN. And he's like, why? I'm like, because that's where I feel comfortable. And what degree and where? And I was like, Chicano Studies, because, again, that's where I feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, all right. So then he looks on his computer with his glasses like this, you know. <laughs> and um, he looked everything up, and he's like, okay, the, it's Wednesday. The application's due Friday. He's like, and I know you're not going to ask me, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a letter of recommendation. You need two. He goes, and then the other one, the other professor that I worked closely with when I came back was Mary Pardo. And um, she wrote my other letter of recommendation. And um, he's like, just work on your statement. I didn't even have a printer to print my grad school application. Yeah. Gabriel printed everything for me. And like those little things, like had I had to go nav- had I had to go print somewhere else and do this and do that, I wouldn't have made the deadline. Like I turned in my application like at 4.50 and it was due at 5 p.m. Like wow. if I, that's how under the wire I was, you know? Um, and I got in and, and, and here I am and I still think of those things like what are we going to do after we get these degrees and what happens next and yes the, the the school is saying we're supportive of revolutionary scholars great but what does that actually mean in terms of something that's tangible are you going to hire us are we going to be running shit or are you just going to continue to tokenize us to fill some diversity quota right. at the end of the year mm-hmm. that could be yeah I mean that's a really good question to pose out there right what happens after and also another uh, an option another option maybe some sort of service that this can provide revolutionary scholars is like trying to employ people after right yeah career path after after the fact Uh, um i think an important thing also is that um we're dealing with a lot of situations a lot of people are dealing with situations and i mean and so in in different levels there are different obstacles for different people. But every person as an individual has their individual obstacles which might tie in somewhere with somebody else's or something else's. But each individual has an obligation to face their own obstacles. 
you know, which comes down to the other end. I mean, whether it's prison, whether it's racial, whether it's sexual, whether it's, you know, whatever kind of obstacle that's placed before them. So, and, and I think it's important to realize that it's, it's, it's up to the individual in the first place to make a decision that I'm going to go and I'm going to fight and I'm going to do this. And, and I think that's where it all starts is regardless of where or how or whatever is coming hit you there's something hitting everybody and it's up to you to say you know what there's plenty of reasons for me to not to go ahead but I'm going to find a reason for me to go ahead mm-hmm. and, and then that's the, that's the starting point and once you start and you make that decision the only thing that will stop you is a decision to stop And that's something that you, no one can take away from each and every one of y'all. It's like, you, despite this crazy obstacle, like, you're here. You're existing in the same space that people right. who went to private school or people had all this access or people. You're right, yeah. Yeah. Because all that decision to to continue. And I think it's it's not by chance. Like, every, every other Project Rebound or Resource Center that is doing what we're trying to do, like, it has a different route. And like we got turned down first, but I think it's not. It's it kind of makes sense that Chicano studies, like, was kind of what propelled us to actually do it to like have us keep going to go. Because I don't think we would have found support in another department with other professors. So I think it's it's. I mean, yeah, like it, it's heavy, and it, and it does come in trying to like what is alternative ways of you know learning, of growing, of realizing that there's different ways of success you know and i think that's what has allowed us i guess or at least me as a revolutionary scholar as a scholar like it's it's good to have some support and to validate you know what we're trying to learn because it's it's pretty outside of the spectrum of what is normalized you know a lot of people when we tell people like oh we're, we're trying to help formerly incarcerated students they're like what you have criminals like who, who's arrested here you know, like some students like flip out, like, really? like, what do you mean, like, formerly incarcerated? Like, they kind of get scared, you know, and they're like, so you're trying to help criminals? And it's like, even just like that, they're already conditioned to think a certain mm-hmm. way. So we're, it's, yeah, and we're trying to be a voice for other students. And at the end of the day, we're an academic institution, this ivory tower that just keeps producing a lot of bad that's wrong in academia and a lot of bad of what's going on in society like mm-hmm. like just the the, the outweigh of like how much support the stem programs get in our in our campus to like ethnic studies program like the like it, it's just it's it's massive the the unbalance mm-hmm. so i mean i forgot my train of thought um <laughs> so all four of you are part of the chicano studies department so what are some classes that really impacted you or some of those professors and what, what was that moment where you felt like this is it this is what I what I want to do like I think for me it was when Gabriel he was my professor when I was arrested and when he went down to homeboy industries after he found out that I was accepted and he had breakfast with me and was like and my kids and he was like and my, then my kid went under the table and took a dump. Um, but <laughs> whenever I think of that, like I, I have that image. But and he was like, "You're going 
and nobody has ever taken that much interest in like my success or in me um, having something that was good um, and that for me was it and then once I landed in the department then I had other professors like Mary Pardo that were like these are scholarships you can apply for and um, I did have I have had professors that have not been supportive and have told me not to share my experience but I've had more professors that have not been that way and um, I have not met I have not come across a lot of um, professors that have not been supportive in my department um, I, outside of the department like you know Diego said I don't think that I would have had the same experience. I, I know that I would have not had the same experience. I know that I, I wouldn't be probably even sitting here. Um, but it was, all of my professors definitely have played a role, specifically um, Gabriel, Mary, Marta Escobar, Marta Lopez Garza, um, that have uh, made sure that I've stayed in school and like check up on me, like, you know, yeah. For myself, I feel like Chicano studies essentially like is trying to teach us like how do you dismantle white supremacy, like like one of the things, and then how do you dismantle all these systems, and not only that, but how, like how do you reconcile that divide, and then how do you reimagine like what what knowledge that we're trying to learn, but is not accepted like on the mainstream. So I think like just even like learning like that, like learning that there, it's not by chance that so many people are incarcerated. You know, there's a reason why we have the most inmates. There's a reason why there's a disproportionate amount of black men in prisons, you know, why brown and black men get criminalized. You know, there's and I think learning those like like systems and structures like allowed me to reimagine something. But it wasn't then like till I, I, I a professor sat me down and it was I was doing my undergrad and I was like spread thin and I was falling apart and I was just like trying to keep my shit together and I was n also not doing the right stuff I was I was doing bad stuff I guess illegal stuff and a professor like sits me down and she's like Diego like you're doing these things because you need to survive like you're not a bad person and like she kind of validated like why I'm doing what I'm doing and and, and I was in education and I was organizing and I was trying to like better myself because I couldn't get work I was like forced to do certain things and I think like even that validation helped me out so much because like it, it, I didn't believe my story till like after I got my BA you know and it was just like having professors to be like down for you and understand mm -hmm. that this is not like the good and bad spectrum is like like fuck that like we are at war and like things are piled up against you like it's sometimes you got to do what you have to do to survive and kind of like seeing it in that perspective helped me understand like that my role is possible and I and I should keep going because I can whatever way that would look like so I would say like classes really taught me to understand the system the structures but it was individual professors as well that really like guided me and like because you can learn all this stuff but like it's it's an internal battle like you said like it's when you decide to fight when you start so I, I was convinced that I could fight by these stories that, or these things professors were telling me. And they would sit me down and be like, there's there's a room for you in this place. You just gotta find it. And just to add to that, like with me, one of the things that I was told to was like, yeah, we're supporting you, but it's not 
about Lily. It's about others like Lily. It's not making sure that Lily graduates. It's making sure that your community and people with this background like graduate and like what that means to our community is like why we do the work not so much you know because of the individual but like looking at it like through this bigger um, lens sorry I think like um, when I was little I grew up fighting I fought all my life and um, from a little kid going into elementary school you know it was real extremely racist you know and um when I started college, because my mother made me, you know, I was a biology major. <laughs> a white professor, white uh, students next to me. I couldn't get into a study group. Professor didn't have time to meet me in his office or nothing. And I was just, I flunk, I was flunking out. And I went on academic probation, and I was ready to flunk out. And one day I walked into the wrong building. And I heard mariachi playing, and, <laughs> and I heard Spanish, and I heard rancheras, and I, <laughs> and, and I was looking around, and I saw these non-white people, and I was like, "Damn, <laughs> I'm in the wrong how country. do I get here?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, and and it was cool because I I, I I would I was allowed to take classes where I learned about how I grew up and the people I was with and, and things like that and you know and and that was that was that was a start. That was a something that um regardless of all the fighting and stuff, it was it, it gave me something that I could put inside of me. Um for me <coughs> I started when I was at San Francisco State. Um, I started as like an older student when I went back. And um, I had a professor, like most of them. Uh, I think that's what makes ethnic studies special is that the professors very much validate your experience. And, um, um, you know, my brothers had been incarcerated a lot since I was 14. And I was used to a lot of police going into the house and disrupting everything, you know, violently. Um, and they get taken away. You don't see them for years. And then you're just like, oh, well, like that's how it is, right? Um, so I got used to that. And I was, when I started at San Francisco State, I was like, I got to do good because this is like real college and I'm old and I need to get my shit together. And um, I guess the professors like noticed. I don't know, but um, she was just like, had us write some poem and then I wrote some poem and she was looking she just said you know write about whatever something that happened yesterday so I wrote uh our house had just got raided and my younger brother was taken away uh that day before so I guess I'll just write about this because I don't have nothing else to write about and then she was looking at it and she was like go ahead and read that to the classroom and I was like uh all right I mean no big deal like I thought I was so conditioned I was like this is normal um and I felt safe enough because it was an ethnic studies English class, so it was small and it was ethnic studies, so I was like, okay. And I read like two words and I started like busting crying and I was like, what's wrong with me? Why am I even crying? And she took me after, you know, she's like, meet with me in my office, like, this is, this is a big deal. And I was like, it's not, it's not a big deal. Um, so after I talked to her and like unpacked that, 
She's like, this is holding you back, but it could also push you because you have blah, blah, blah. Um, from there, that's when I was like, oh shit, like I didn't know how much this was a drive um, because like how you were saying earlier, education and the incarceration system, they are linked closely. Um, and I always think about my brothers and how, how am I here and they're not here because they can they, they understand so much more. They're so much smarter than me. Um, but what makes me be here? Is it because I'm a woman and I don't look as threatening? Is it because of my lighter skin? Is it like, what is, what is it? And, and how did they get pushed out? Like so early, because I remember, you know, uh, what happened to them and, and all those questions. So I think that's that's a lot of a, a lot of when I'm sitting in the classroom, I'm thinking about them. And I'm always like, especially when I first started uh, CSUN, I was like, I think this is fucking stupid. I was sitting in a classroom talking about in- incarcerated people and none of us have been incarcerated. Like how co- how comfortable, mm-hmm. um, you know, I haven't been impacted. I got arrested a couple of times when I was underage and another time for assault but I I never did you know I think I like two nights in county or something like that but yeah I I don't like that and that so I I think revolutionary scholars is very important because that's a that's how are we gonna talk about this without having people you know directly impacted and and um, I think that's really important the work that they're doing I, I totally agree with that, that we need people that have experienced it to be uh, leading the movement. That's one of, one of the, the, I guess that's, that's what kind of holds me back from wanting to do the actual podcast itself, because I have not been incarcerated. How can I speak for you? So, so, uh, if you want, yeah. Um, and so, because you're right, you, we could sit in a room and I could be comfortable and, and talk about that, but I haven't been there. I haven't been affected in that way. And so the first two episodes has just been that, talking in a room with people that have been not directly affected, but some, somehow indirectly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yesterday we recorded an episode where we read the works from somebody from Lancaster so I thought that that was a little closer to, to what we should be doing um, this what we're doing right now I think is as is that next step Ho- hopefully someday we could talk to somebody that's directly in there and that's uh, dealing with it in the moment because I think they sh- they should be be able to have that conversation with people that are that are free I did air quotes for all those that can't see me. Um, but yeah. Um, I think you're doing something very important. I mean, you're doing something. Everybody has a place and a time and something that they're supposed to do at that place and time, which ties into everything else and connects things in ways that it wouldn't be connected without it. So, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that when it comes to something so huge and important. I mean, if you look at the numbers, yeah. and if you can if you can see some of the faces, then I don't think there's any way you can't understand 
what you're doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if it's doing something. Mm-hmm. I spent 22 years in prison doing a life sentence. And what you're doing is pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I'm really happy you were all willing to share. I know I'm yeah. getting a little emotional right now. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think from seeing to where we started to where the campus was rejecting us and to see like all of us sitting here together talking about it and to have connected with each other like for me is like I don't know like I'm like I want to cry um a cry baby Giona like the corazón yeah um, so, yeah. so uh Jose and Rosa touched on something I've been totally silent listening to all of you and I'm extremely grateful um I haven't been impacted well by the prison system directly but sort of to what Rosa touched on right it's affected my family in some way but just listening and sort of having a space and facilitating that space. Like there's times when I know I just need to take a seat and let other people speak. So I'm super, super grateful that you've all allowed us to have this opportunity and share this space with you to do that. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I don't know, is there anything else that we, can we top that? <laughs> I know it's like a perfect mic drop moment. Like to any, after I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> But also, uh, one of the things that we've, we've, we've picked up on and talked about just about in every episode is community, right? Um, and I'm super glad that our communities have intersected in this way. So hopefully we can stay in touch and touch base and help each other out in however ways we can. So, yeah. For sure. Yeah, Diego definitely, like, for, for me and, like, for RS, I think he's definitely, like, part of the glue that keeps it together because he's always, like, what's next and, like, events and how can we like build community together and how can we like he's like bomb like when isn't there like a hiking like every like everyone's going hiking together tomorrow tomorrow morning and then every you know so it's like like yeah so yeah and it's been it's been a trip doing this because like there's no manual there's no template to like what a resource center for formerly incarcerated looks like Mm. and like like it's a, it's one thing to like know that there's like a school to prison pipeline, but to even like say like a prison to college pipeline, like that in itself just like trips me out of like, is it possible, you know? So like a lot of this work has been, has been weird, cause like we're the ones that can like, at least through our prof- like our, our advisors, Chicano studies professors are like, I'm not incarcerated. Like you tell me how I can help you and I'll proofread things, but like you tell me what you want to do with this. So it's been. And there is no, like, all these programs in the Cal State that have, like, one year, like, brand new. So we're all just trying to, like, help each other out, get ideas from each other. So it's it's been interesting. And everyone's administration, like, works differently. So, like, some things work for some campuses and some things don't. So it's it's weird. Like, we need a lot of help, you know, and we need a lot, like, different. Like, this is a lot of help, you know, in getting our stories out. Like, a lot of people on campus don't know that we're there, you know. A lot of administrators are still not trying to, like, fuck with us. A lot of, like, we're not... They're, they're not giving us stats, you know, from admissions and whatnot. So I feel like it's it's weird, and I feel like it's like we're in the room, but we're still not, like, acknowledged yet. But we're trying to. At least we're in the room now. Next, like, let's get on the table. 
unless like get a seat at the table. And I think it's also important to note that a lot of important work in institutions happens under the radar of the institution, right? You know, these communities that you're connecting with individual professors or that you're building with each other or that creating this um, resource center, you know, all happened without the help of like the institution mm-hmm. per se, you know, and I think it speaks a lot to what the institution stands for, really, and then what really matters, right, which is like these communities that you guys were all talking about. Um, that's amazing, yeah. And that it's led by people that are impacted, you know, like, like Diego said, there is no template, but it's like we get to make the template is also, I think, something that's that's good, you know, um, and design it. Yeah. Or As try it to, right. you know, because there's still bureaucracy and, mm-hmm. you know. Red tape. Yeah. <coughs> I can't imagine how it must feel to kind of have to, um, like, have to sell yourself every every interaction that you come across to somebody. And, you know, I think that's where it's a form of self-preservation when you create a community, like, you know, uh, revolutionary scholars, right? Right. Cause you just this is a space where you, I mean I imagine you just kind of like don't have to worry about all the shit that you have to worry about when you're applying for a job applying for school apply, meeting new people you know um, it's yeah I think it's a double-edged sword because I feel like like acknowledging like my privilege of being able to be on a campus like a campus is not a reflection of society so I think of like if I wasn't on a campus like I'd still be in the same boat of like all these other folks that are not so like yeah education gives you a chance but what if education is not your path you know are you still going to be susceptible to just having a social death how Lily had said or like is there an opportunity for those that are not planning on getting an education and like how can we fix that how can we humanize folks that are not getting an education as well and I think along with like one of the problems is like like I never told anyone that I had a record and stuff and the more I say it now like I there's like a a sensationalization that people like have around this especially because it's trendy now and I know Lily goes through it too and she talks to me about it and it's like when does it when is it like help because you believe in this or when is it just like a popular topic for you to throw money at or when is it when is it a popular time for you guys to finally invite us in you know, so it's kind of like, and it, and we gotta be careful with that, cause I mean, I, I don't like, like now I'm talking more about my shit, but now I'm just like, fuck, do you guys just want to bring me up, cause you know, we're formally incarcerated or whatever, quote unquote, you know, and it's the yeah, it's the new, you know, thing to do. So it's, it's kind of weird. It, it, we are selling ourselves and selling our stories, and God, like, there's still so many people that are not like out. So it's. I mean, it kind of fucks with, like, at least my mental sometimes. And it's, like, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Like, it's a resource for us, but there's still a lot more work to do. It it definitely messes with me a lot. And I think I've been talking to Rosa about it a lot lately. Like, it really, it's been, like, like, what am I doing? Um, And in putting myself out there, like in creating spaces for formerly incarcerated students like Diego said what are we doing for those that are not and you know when the media reports on formerly incarcerated students it's either one of two things to sensationalize you and exceptionalize you and saying how you went through all of these fucking hoops and like how amazing you are or to further dehumanize and criminalize you and say because of his background this person is this and that so it's either you fall into one of two and so now that I have 
like a platform or whatever and, and like what are we doing for those that don't fall in line with what society deems as valuable or invaluable and how we you know it was in our in one of our classes that like it really caused me to like do a lot of self-reflection and think like what am I what am I doing and does it matter and how does this fit into the bigger picture and how like I mentioned earlier like yeah we call ourselves revolutionary scholars but we're fighting for a piece of the same carcinogenic pie like how is that revolutionary it's really not um and so are people that don't go to college or their lives not as valuable you know um I've been having that similar conversation with with uh, some of the people in in our cohort. Um, a lot of what we do in in English literature is very. You need to have like this apathetic nature about yourself to separate yourself from uh, the text, and then what the text is talking about. And I've I've come to a to a point. Um, in this program where I could no longer do that because I'm a super emotional guy and I can't be reading a story like Uncle Tom about a black man whose body has been pacified in order for white people to feel comfortable. Like I just can't do that anymore. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying and, and you know what, it's the trip because um, I've learned one thing about academia is they try to teach you to separate yourself from everything. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, you, how would you say it, you nullify all of those things that those people and everything is happening with them and everything that you're mm-hmm. in touch with, and you're cutting off a part of yourself. Yeah. Which dehumanizes yourself mm-hmm. and allows you to see other people dehumanized and not be faded about it. Yeah. You know, and, and me, myself, I, I, I do my best to make everything a part of myself do my best to look and see inside to see how does that feel how does that look how does this and hell I figure being real human is a lot better than being a fake human mm-hmm. yeah so yeah fuck academia <laughs> like fuck <laughs> and then when not for, like for real like even when you get professors like that are about to research they it, it just it, it's thought there's so much money in education but it's so like limited to some people mm-hmm. and it's like knowing that I don't know it's just like so many professors just do it for for recognition and for a status and for their paycheck and like it's our academic spaces helping community spaces like no like are I mean they are in a sense but at the same time they're not you know or at least like academic institutions at the like university level or UC level, and I don't know. It, it's it's something that I'm, I I think about all the time. Like I'm I'm tired of reading all this, like regurgitating all these narratives that just make me want to like cry and die. Like mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes I'm just dismembered and I'm trying to barely sew myself up, and like I'm not there yet. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's heavy. Yeah. It's hard. It's like when Omar told us. The average journal gets read by three people. And I was like, okay, so we're going through this whole master's program and all this stuff to write journals and stuff that I only read. I said, you know what, let me think. 
I go, that's a hell of a playground, a little sandbox that society's thrown us in mm-hmm. to, to keep us occupied so that we can not do, because we can't write things that the regular public, that a majority of the public can't even understand. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, that's a hell of a little sandbox they put yeah. us in. And it questions when you ask about going on to a doctor's degree. You know what I mean? Humanities and everything is all about going back to the community. It's all about going back to the people and sharing and growing as a whole. And if you're playing in the sandbox with only three other people, <laughs> you know, there's not a whole lot of building. Wait, there. How, yeah. much, how much money do you make in the sandbox, though? I might want to go play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how much does it cost to play in the sandbox? Yeah, exactly. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's just a box with no sand. <laughs> but it's, it's true. Like, who is this accessible to? Yeah. yeah. It's discrimination. That's why I say it's fuck it. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then, um, yeah. people that want to be on your, I feel want to be on your thesis just because you're trending. Like, mm-hmm. do you really care? What, I don't know. Like, I'm just having this whole, like Diego said, this whole dilemma. Yeah, and it's funny when when people start using words like marketable, right? Like, mm. Oh, you're marketable. You know, you should definitely apply to this program. You should definitely apply um, to this. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna share something. So, I was given this op- great opportunity. Right, and um, I'm gonna go to Washington D.C. and speak, mm. and but I know that the reason that I'm there is because I look a certain way and I talk a certain way, even though I'm formerly incarcerated, because I demystify like uh, yeah, like I I look yeah, and so I, it's like I'm 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 thankful. Thank you, because I see it as I get to travel for free, but also, like, I know why I'm in the room also, and it's because people are like, oh, like, you don't look like someone that's fit to prison. Well, let's unpack that. Like, what is a person? What does it mean? What did you say? What does that even mean? And, you know, we're talking about the importance of language and ex-con and felon and criminal, and when I first came out, I didn't have that analysis to understand what these labels were or what they meant. It was something that was learned. And I think to even go back and say that these things are problematic comes from a position of some kind of like privilege, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, like I have that constant battle within myself, like it's not easy, you know? And it's hard because especially when someone puts the pressure of, well, it's not about you individually, it's about the work that you're, the doors that you're opening up for your community, right? You, it's no longer about you. And like, how do you negotiate that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, who, how can someone live with that? pressure right and this is something that I feel a lot of marginalized communities uniquely have to experience Mm -hmm. in academic circles or in places where yeah I see it as like you know we complain about like not being at the table so once I am at the table and I get to the table it's what I bring to the table and what I do once I'm there Um, but yeah Um, thanks again for listening that was the end of our interview with revolutionary scholars from CSUN be sure to follow the, them on Instagram at Revolutionary Scholars for the up-to-date info about their upcoming events. Remember to follow us on iTunes, Instagram, and SoundCloud at Sentences Podcast. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button on iTunes and SoundCloud, and be sure to rate us and leave a message. Send any questions and comments you have to sentencespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Alfred. Lizette. And this is Jose.